John chapter 15, it's on page 876, and we're starting at verse 9, halfway down there. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that, you may, you, so that my joy may be complete in you, and then your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you my friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know one, the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. And if you flick over to page 981, the second reading is from 1 Peter, starting at chapter 2, verse 4. As you have come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, 
whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and command and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Craig, if I haven't met you personally before, and uh, it's a real joy to be in this space and share church this afternoon together. Uh, as um, Dylan and Justin alluded to, I was here a couple of weeks ago and we started reading the book of 1 Peter, and uh, this afternoon we're going to keep thinking through this letter in the New Testament. Uh, and so... This afternoon, as uh, we just heard, we're in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Now, a bit of a review from two weeks ago. Uh, in the opening chapter, the Apostle writes to those who are following Jesus, and he gives us an identity uh, as exiles uh, and also as children of God who are sitting on an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, all through the work of Jesus for us. Uh, and he provides the foundation for what I would say is a humble confidence and also a, a kind of a quirky distance in our stance to an often hostile world. That's opening up his letter in chapter one. In chapter two this week, uh, Peter does three things. Firstly, he reminds us of who we are as a church. He identifies what battle we're actually fighting and he gets down to some practicalities of living well in a hostile world. Uh, we've already prayed this afternoon that God will speak through his word to us. And I think God hears our prayers. So let's get into 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, did you notice uh, at the start of this reading that Dan read that Peter's description of the church uh, begins with Jesus? Uh, he will write that those who, are call, uh, those who God has called into his church have now become a spiritual house, which is effectively like a new temple. But Peter begins with his, uh, his description with Jesus, and quoting Isaiah 28, he identifies Jesus as the chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, what's a cornerstone? 
Well, a cornerstone is the stone off which all the other stones are measured, right? So it's a foundational building block. And of course, uh, you could argue this is the good news of Jesus Christ. By faith, oh, he is the cornerstone off which our lives are measured. Uh, by faith, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. By faith, his death is a substitute for our death. By faith, we are adopted into his sonship. And by faith, our lives are being transformed into his likeness. He is the chosen and precious cornerstone. But look again at the first attribute Peter identifies about Jesus in verse 4. He writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Rejected by humans. I take it Peter himself was actually in the room when Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Uh, so later, if you read on in this letter from Peter, he will write to these persecuted Christians with these words. He'll say, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ... You're blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. What if hostility, what if rejection can lead to joy? Uh, what if rejection could actually cement your, our inclusion in the people of God? What if as a community, as a church, which is just all of us together here this afternoon, we were to experience actually a closeness to Jesus and each other through the hostility we face. Now, I have to be honest with you, it's worth noting uh, this weekend, it's a little late, but with the topic we have, the book we're reading, uh, the recent Andrew Thorburn controversy at the Essendon Football Club. I'm not sure if any of you had been following it, but Essendon Football Club put him in as the head of their football club and um, there was a bit of hoo-ha that was kicked up because he's part of a pretty standard evangelical Christian church in Melbourne and uh, he resigned from the top job, what, 48 hours after he was put in place. Um, the whole thing just seems very complex. It's a complex mess, to be honest. Um, and I'm the first one to admit, I think I know about, at, at most, one-ninth of what's actually taken place. It's always fun to comment on public things when you don't know anything. Uh, so I don't really know much about what's gone on there other than just what's in the paper. But I have heard a lot of Christians uh, online and in person uh, just sort of declaring outrage. You know, how dare this happen? This is religious persecution. Um, the hypocrites and the progressive lefties are going too far. There are a few gospel voices in all of this, a few I've heard in the discussion, 
Uh, Certainly Guy Mason, who's the pastor of the Melbourne Church, uh, I thought he has spoken incredibly graciously, um, displaying grace and peace. And uh, Andrew's public statement that expressed lament and also humility in admitting that he wasn't the right person for the role. But there does seem to be a lot of public Christian voices uh, that have perhaps forgotten that Jesus is their cornerstone, uh, who have forgotten what Jesus explicitly said would happen to all who follow him. But Peter says, do not be surprised at such things. Don't put your energy into outrage or revenge. Instead, Peter tells us to place our energy into praising God. In a hostile world, it is the local gathering of Jesus' followers that will be God's local voice and hands and feet. And in the new temple that Jesus is building, the sacrifices now take the form of declaring the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Theologian Paul Barnett suggests that verse 9 there, declaring the wonderful praises of Jesus, is not a reference to direct evangelism, but rather it's a reference to the persecuted church being marked by praise to God. And so 4 p.m. in your gatherings as a community, may you keep praising the God who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, This is who we are to be as a church in a hostile world. God's temple and priesthood, and it's all built off the cornerstone of Jesus himself. And now with these two realities firmly in place, uh, Peter then turns to talking about the fight that we are in. And as we consider his words, I want to remind you of the context that Peter is writing into. Uh, We looked at this the other week. It's around 64 AD that this letter was written. And uh, have a listen to this account uh, of Christians at the time by the Roman senator and historian Tacitus. He was writing around 116 AD, but he was using senatorial records as his source. So we think this is pretty accurate to what was happening at the time. Uh, Anyway, he he writes this. Uh, Consequently, there had been a huge fire in Rome. Uh, To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information... An immense multitude was convicted, not not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Whew. Uh, So Christians living in 64 AD 
um, hated for their abominations, evil, obviously, considered haters of mankind, horrendously killed for being the bigots that they were. And so now Peter calls these early Christians to battle in verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Did I read that right? I think I did. Uh, We have a real enemy, according to Peter. We have a real enemy, but it is not the Roman Empire. The ones who are persecuting us and mocking us and killing us, they are not the enemy. We have a real enemy, Uh, but it's not secular Sydney. It's not those who would write terrible things about us in the papers. It's not... Peter Fitzsimons or the aggressive ideological left. It's not the Essendon Football Club. They are not the enemy. Our enemy are the sinful desires waging war against our soul. So Peter says if we want to wage a war and if we want to get tough, if we want to look for a fight in these hostile times, Peter says don't look out there uh, because the fight is in here. Of course, it was Jesus himself who says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And so, as I live in a hostile world, my aggressive streak, if I have one, is to be directed towards my own godliness. Peter writes, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. It's interesting to note here, Peter introduces us to the concept um, of filtering our desires. That's the battle, to, to be in control of our desires, isn't it? That is, to learn how to know and name our desires, and then initiate the process of establishing whether this is a good desire or a sinful desire, so that, I guess, I can then know whether to act upon it or to abstain from it. Now, this is a different approach than the one we commonly hear by the way of expressive individualism, which is so prevalent now in the Western world and also here in Australia. Expressive individualism will say that your desires are the indicator of your truest self. If I feel it, it it must be right. And so my desires are actually my ultimate authority. And to be honest, that view resonates with me a lot. Because what could be more me than my desires? But Peter and the other biblical authors, they take a different approach. They're not anti-desire, but they do encourage us to filter our desires. And I take it that Peter learned this from Jesus himself, who said, it's actually from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Jesus identifies the huge importance of being attentive 
to what's happening inside of us. Peter encourages us not to be enslaved by our desires, but rather to have the capacity to filter them, embrace some, abstain from others. And this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the power of God at work in our life. Because we'll read in Galatians 5 that the fruit, one of the fruits of God's Spirit, is self-control. And it's the biblical image of human freedom. Now, will this task of filtering and abstaining be easy? Um, No. Peter could not have used a more vivid, confronting language, could he? Um, He said there will be inner desires that wage war against your soul. War involves scheming and planning and blood and fear and deception and betrayal. Pride, envy, greed, lust, anger, jealousy. They can all operate as little generals in our hearts and minds, in our lives. But I take it this is where we come back to what it looks like to live as exiles, children of God, a holy priesthood. What did I say the other week? A, um, a restored humanity in a hostile world. The fight is not out there. The fight is for our own godliness individually and also collectively as a family. Our own obedience to Christ, our often slow, sometimes fast transformation into someone new. I think for me, one of the greatest challenges in following Jesus um, was coming to terms with the fact that it doesn't necessarily get easier. Uh, I think I assumed that just like any skill um, or any lifestyle, of course it would get easier and more automatic the longer I did it. That's true of lots of other things. Um, I had the image that godliness was a linear equation Um, that was always moving upwards. And so if the Spirit is at work with me, in me, and it's been five years, I should be this much godlier. (laughs) And to be fair, there are some rhythms that have become embedded in my life that by the grace of God, I think have helped me to grow in Christ-likeness, 100%. There's been change. But after all these years, I still fight with an inherited critical spirit, which I'm desperately seeking to not inflict now upon my wife and my child. Um, But it's really hard. And so I'm seeing a, a Christian psychologist to help me work out where this deep form of criticism is coming from. Uh, After all these years, um, I still have a problem with alcohol, something that began 15, 20 years ago and of which I've really had to wrestle with over the years. And currently I've given up alcohol, um, which is tough because I love it. Um, I know my salvation is not dependent on these things. We are saved by the grace of God. But it's also not who I want to grow up into as a child of God. So in a hostile world, if you want to get tough and fight back, uh, then from today, Peter says, fight for your own personal godliness. Take it seriously. Get aggressive. 
If there's an area of your life that has you enslaved, um, I encourage you to be courageous. Um, or at least kind of white, wave the white flag, which doesn't feel courageous, but it is, and actually find some help. Seek help if needed from Justin or Emma, from Robert, from Jenny, uh, from your community group, from a trusted Christian friend, from a counsellor or psychologist. We have a real enemy. God's Spirit helps us in abstaining from sinful desires, and so does his people. So if this is the fight that we're in, what happens when I turn my gaze outwards, out the door, to those who are actually persecuting me? Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day he visits. Uh, to help us out a little more, Peter actually outlines a few areas of life in which his readers could do this. And so the framework here in chapter 2, Peter says, in relation to the authorities, be a good citizen. And in relation to your masters, be a good worker. And the thread that's running through Peter's approach here to engaging with a hostile world is simple. Regardless of who has authority over you, be a blessing to them. I love the simplicity. You don't have to ask questions or think, what should I do? Or maybe it's just this. Whoever has authority over you, be a blessing to them. That is the way of Jesus. Peter writes, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Uh, we see here submission is kind of a key term for Peter. And uh, submission in this context means placing yourself under the authority of someone else. Uh, submission is voluntary. It is when I choose to place myself under another person. And the movement in this text is pretty straightforward from Peter. He says, first, for the Lord's sake, verse 13, and then in reverent fear to God, submit yourselves to others. According to Peter, our submission to authorities and masters is not based on the authorities or the masters. It's based on our identity in Christ. Uh, Peter's not calling his Christian brothers and sisters to be doormats for the state. Uh, in fact, I think it's the opposite. He's calling them to honour Christ by choosing to submit themselves to the authorities. And it's really the paradox of the early church. How did it impact and change the entire Roman Empire? By not trying to impact and change the entire Roman Empire. Look at Peter's summary statement. Show proper respect to everyone. There's no wiggle room there. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Christians were called to be good citizens who lived different lives. Uh, put your energy towards godliness, a life transformed, building communities of praise and thanks. Don't put your energy towards trying to make your country Christian because it's just the wrong battle. 
In relation to the authorities, be a good citizen. In relation to your masters, be a good worker. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, as you read through this letter, I think you get a real sense of what Peter is doing. I, he's kind of, in his words, he's unstitching the brokenness that sin has brought into all our social and personal relationships. And he's saying that in Christ, we now kind of wear a new garment. Uh, we're actually a citizen of, of a new kingdom. And so rather than putting your energy towards conspiring and scheming to overthrow the government, just get on respecting authority and being a good citizen. Rather than putting your energy towards plotting revenge on your terrible boss, just get on with being a good worker whose actions aren't dependent on your boss. Instead, be someone whose actions are built off Jesus, your cornerstone, your true master. If you have a great master, be a great worker. If you have a terrible master, be a great worker. Your earthly master is not the determiner of your actions. Jesus is. And I guess conceptually and practically, this is why it's possible for Christians to love their enemies. Because our response to them is not dependent upon them. It is built off Christ, our cornerstone. Who, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So in chapter 2, Peter does three things for us. He reminds us who we are as church. He identifies what battle we're actually fighting. And he gets down to some practical ways to live in a hostile world. I'm going to invite the band to come up if you want to jump up now. I'm going to finish our reflections in this chapter uh, with a quote from the theologian Miroslav Volf. He summarizes it this way. He says, we get no sense from one Peter that the church should strive to regulate all domains of social life and reshape society in the image of the heavenly Jerusalem. It did not wish to impose itself or the kingdom of God on the world, but to live in faithfulness to God and to the values of God's kingdom, inviting others to come and do the same. It had no desire to do for others what they did not want done for them. They had no covert totalitarian agenda. Rather, the community was to live an alternate way of life in the present social setting, transforming it as it could from within. In any case, the community did not seek to exert social or political pressure, but to give public witness to a new way of life. So 4 p.m., may we continue to grow and give public witness to a new way of life that we've found in Jesus. Amen.